3: KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, with kids 5 to 11 now eligible for COVID-19 vaccines, many are beginning to wonder what that means for the lifting of mask mandates or other restrictions at schools. Parents want to know what metrics California will use. And so far, state officials haven't had much to say. In many ways, what's happening at the school level mirrors what Atlantic staff writer Sarah Zhang says is happening at the national level. The US isn't answering the hard question of what it means to live with and manage COVID-19 long term. We'll talk to Zhang about how the country finds its off-ramp to normal. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Atlantic staff writer Sarah Zhang begins her recent piece with the premise, we know how this ends. The coronavirus becomes endemic and we live with it forever. But Zhang writes, what we don't know and what the U.S. seems to have no coherent plan for is how we're supposed to get there. This hour, we look at the challenges of managing the transition of COVID to endemicity and why Zhang says the U.S. must stop avoiding the hard questions that will get us there. Her piece is titled, America has lost the plot on COVID. Sarah Zhang, welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Could you start with just a quick reminder of what endemic means?
2: Yeah, sure. Endemic is one of those terms that used to only be in scientific textbooks, and now (laughs) we're kind of throwing it around. It's an everyday conversation now. So endemic essentially means, uh, it describes, for example, a virus that um, has a reached kind of an equilibrium. So enough people have immunity to it that it no longer causes big spikes in in cases or uncontrolled spread. So a good example of a virus that is endemic that we live with all the time is, is the flu, right? The flu happens every year. There's a flu season every year, but it doesn't really disrupt our lives the way The coronavirus obviously have. We don't shut down all of our schools. We don't, you know, completely upend our lives. It's something that we just kind of live with. And of course, there are also flu deaths every year. Um, But it's sort of at a level where we feel like the flu is reasonably under control.
3: And so why did we decide that this is going to be endemic? Why did we give up on the idea, for example, that we can no longer achieve herd immunity like measles and polio, right, with vaccinations? Just remind us of one of the main reasons, of course, being uptake, but but what led to this?
2: Yeah, so unfortunately, we didn't really decide this. Um, it was decided for us in some ways by <laughs> the interaction by the virus and our own immune system. So as you're saying, you know, earlier this year or even uh, last year, when we first got the vaccines, they, they look so effective. I think everyone was thinking, okay, we can vaccinate our way to herd immunity, which is, as you were saying, maybe similar to measles or polio, where enough people have immunity that there might still be some cases, but we're just not worried about it anymore. We're not going to think about it. It's not going to be on, on the top of our minds. Um, and then two things happened. The first thing that happened is Delta, obviously. Uh, Delta, this this variant has the ability to just spread really, really well. So it has a, what is called a higher r not value. So it's just really good at finding people who um, to infect. And it also is slightly, slightly um, better at evading the immunity that we do have with the vaccines that we currently have. So Delta just made it a little bit harder with our current vaccines to keep things under control. The other thing that is kind of becoming more and more clear is that our immunity against this coronavirus does wane, even yes. in the absence of um, the virus itself changing, right? So one thing we have is the virus itself changing. The other thing is our own immune system is changing. Um, And that's not really that unexpected because even last year when we were looking at uh, other coronaviruses, so there are four other coronaviruses that cause common colds. We don't really know very much about them because usually they're kind of just fade into the background, but the evidence that suggests that our immunity to those coronaviruses fades fairly quickly and you might be reinfected a year later or a couple years later. Um, but it's going to be more mild the second time you get it. Um, so these two things, the uh, the emergence of Delta and our own waning immunity, have made it really, really hard with our current vaccines to get to herd immunity. And that's not even getting to the problem of uptake itself, which um, in parts of the U.S. we are seeing is, of course, still an issue.
3: Yes. But uh, even if, based on what you're saying, even if we had like 100% vaccine uptake It sounds like the performance of the vaccine, the rise of Delta and so on, does mean that we will actually not achieve herd immunity.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's possible that even the world where every single American gets a shot, we still won't get to herd immunity. And that's because when we're talking about herd immunity, the the protection we're talking about, the immunity we're talking about is immunity against transmission, right? And what we've seen with Delta and what we've seen waning immunity is that it's really possible for people who are already vaccinated or have already had Covid to have it again, Um, even if it's going to be less mild the second time. What we are seeing is that vaccines are still holding up really well with protection against severe illnesses, protection against deaths. Um, The exceptions of this are people maybe who are older or immunocompromised. That's why we're giving out boosters. Um, But but we might think of you know protection from a vaccine. I've kind of compared to sometimes like a instead of like an on-off switch, it's kind of like a dimmer. So um, the protection against transmission is going to fade first. So And that's what we need if we're talking about herd immunity. And our vaccines just currently aren't good enough to get us there. It's possible um, that we might get better vaccines in the future. For example, one thing that researchers have been really interested in is nasal vaccines. And that's because the virus, when we get infected, it infects us through our nose, right? It doesn't infect us through our muscle the way we are getting (laughs) when we get a vaccine shot. Um, And there are kind of antibodies in the mucosal lining of your nose that act really fast against that virus right there. So if you can induce immunity there with a nasal vaccine, that might be better protective against transmission than the shots that we're giving people currently in people's arms. But it just really does seem that given our current vaccines, which are still really good and really effective, but they're just not good enough to prevent transmission to get us a herd immunity.
3: Right. So as, you, as we should always underscore, the protection is durable. The protection against severe diseases, you write, is durable. And so the vaccine is worth getting for that reason. Um, But yes, it will not protect against against transmission. We're talking with Sarah Zhang, staff writer for The Atlantic. Her recent story is America has lost the plot on COVID. And your you, listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions about how COVID becomes manageable and what that looks like for our society. And as always, you can join by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email us forum at kqed.org. So if we're not going to necessarily vaccinate our way out of this. You're saying that we need to take on the harder task of figuring out what it means to live with it essentially for the long term. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about the challenges now of figuring out <laughs> what we're supposed to what we're supposed to measure, what we're supposed to determine um, to try to say lift restrictions or bring back life to some level of normalcy.
2: So why I wrote this article, I feel like we should be having this conversation. So, you know, we're never going to herd immunity. We're never going to get the risk of COVID down to absolute zero. So what we, we need to talk about and what we need to agree on and what we need to define is the level of risk that we, we can live with, right? Um, and so one thing that is sort of becoming clear is that a number Uh, a metric that we've all been watching a lot, which is case numbers, that is probably just going to be going to become less and less important going forwards. And that's just because once a lot of your population has immunity, um, the cases that you're going to get are just much less severe than the cases that we were getting before anyone had immunity, right? Because if you're getting a breakthrough or if you're getting a reinfection, um, it's just so much less likely that you're going to have a very severe outcome. Um, So that means cases are no longer created equal. And what we're seeing is, um, you know, for the CDC example has guidelines for indoor masking for people who are already vaccinated. And these guidelines are based on test cases of community transmission. So basically, you know, cases per 100,000 people and test positivity rates. And it's, you know, I think the idea is a kind of Gauge how much virus is out there in your community to decide whether you should be um Wearing a mask or not, but what ends up happening is that a very highly vaccinated place, for example, the Bay Area is very highly vaccinated. Um, the same amount of cases there is just going to have a different level of impact than the same number, like it's the same number of cases in a much less vaccinated area. And it just is starting to make less and less sense to hold those same areas to the same metric or to the same standard. So, what's an alternative?
3: Um, well, before you th- get to that, yeah. can I just ask you a follow-up about case sure. numbers too? I I mean, generally, we are being asked to test if we know that we've been exposed or if we're having symptoms. So that could also skew like the the case, sort of the positivity rate of those cases as well, which could also skew the picture of how prevalent the coronavirus is in communities.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, cases are a really complicated. It's so funny. We think we, you know, a number looks so simple, but once you drill down into how you get to this number, it gets so complicated, and there's so many ways it can be skewed. Uh, like you're saying, who is deciding to get tested? Um, I think another thing that might be skewing the numbers is we're seeing um, people doing more kind of at-home um, uh, immediate tests, right? The rapid tests. And those aren't necessarily, especially if it's a negative case, those aren't necessarily reported. So now you're having a lot of negative cases that might not be reported. Um, so exactly. I think this has been, you know, case numbers were never a perfect number throughout the pandemic. We've it, it, we realize it depends on who's getting tested, how available testing is, um, but as we've kind of introduced yet another variable into this, which is vaccination, um, I think cases are becoming less and less useful.
3: Yes, and as you say, less and less severe. So, so what's another metric that we could use?
2: Yeah. So <laughs> there isn't necessarily widespread available uh, widespread agreement on what we should be looking at instead, but one sort of. Um, idea we can think about is instead of reducing cases, we should be reducing hospitalizations or like the burden on the healthcare system. Um, The problem with just looking at hospitalizations is that they're obviously a lagging indicator. So if I get sick today, I might not be hospitalized for another two weeks, right? So once you see an uptick in hospital cases, you might already have a bigger uptick that's already been baked in because you're kind of reacting a little bit too slowly. Um, So it's possible you might want to look at hospitalizations in combination with um, Who's actually getting hospitalized? Is it vaccinated people, unvaccinated people, older people, younger people? Uh, maybe hospitalizations in combination with the uh, vaccination rate in the area. Um, I asked a lot of experts this question, and they gave me really, really different answers. Not sorry, not very different answers. You know, hospitalizations was the the key thing they wanted to keep down, but sort of when you get into the details and the specifics and how do you think about setting on ramps or off ramps for COVID policy, it's actually pretty complicated, which is why we should be having this conversation.
3: And we'll have more of this conversation with Sarah Zhang after the break. Again, we're talking about how we'll manage COVID long term and how we'll decide when and if to lift restrictions, what metrics we should use to help us make those decisions. And we'd love to hear your thoughts. 866-733-6786, the number. Email address forum at KQBD.org. You can post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Sarah Zhang, staff writer for The Atlantic, whose recent story is America has lost the plot on COVID, where Zhang says that America is avoiding the hardest question about what it means to live with the coronavirus long term. One of the things that we were talking about before the break, Sarah Zhang, were metrics. What are the the right kinds of metrics and, and what are the complications with each of the metrics that we're thinking about? And I wanted to ask you about the UK and Germany, which, as I understand it, have declared it their approach to use hospitalizations rather than all cases or or large case numbers as driving um, their decisions. Can you talk a little bit about their approach?
2: Yeah, yeah. And so in the UK, for example, um, you know, their health officials have talked about how hospitalization, they're, sorry, they have talked about how vaccination kind of um, breaks the link between hospitalizations and cases. Um, and so the idea is that once you have a lot of immunity in your population, either because of vaccines or because a lot of people have gotten COVID, you might still see a lot of cases, but you're just going to have see many, many fewer hospitalizations than you did in a... Like previous totally unvaccinated immune, um, immunologically naive uh, state. And so, what this means is that. Um, I think the UK is actually a complicated example right now because they are having a pretty high uptick in in cases. And you're actually seeing a rise in hospitalizations as well. Um, I would said a little bit earlier this year that in some ways the UK is a place to watch because they've been a little bit ahead of us in in several trends. For example, they were first to have alpha and they're first to have delta. And they also were slightly ahead of us in, in vaccination. So I think we're seeing that even with really good vaccination uptake, Um, you can still get case spikes and if those are unmanaged or if they happen to find the right population, you will still see more hospitalizations. Um, That's one of the reasons UK wrote out boosters. I will say the other thing that is really important is that um, we talk a lot about what percentage of the population has been vaccinated. Um, But it really also depends on who has been vaccinated. Um, we, there's a really, really strong correlation between people who are elderly and unvaccinated and, and hospitalization upticks. And we've seen this, you know, in country after country, state after state over the past year or so. And so I think we should be talking about not just how many people are vaccinated, but how many people, for example, over the age of 50, 60, 65 are vaccinated, because that's going to really determine how much that affects hospitalizations and the burden on hospitals going forward.
3: Well, let me go to caller Eileen in Carmichael. Hi, Eileen.
4: Hi, thank you for taking my call. Uh, Really quickly, I kind of have three things I'm interested in knowing. One is, is there any kind of a difference between which vaccine you got and how long it's viable or uh, um, is know, able to keep you from getting the vaccination or getting uh, COVID-19? The other thing is, is we're seeing an uptick right now in San Juan, um it seems like it gets better and then all of a sudden you know we're discharging as many as we're admitting and then all of a sudden we admit more than we're discharging um and i wondered um if that's going to be a long-term thing and um the third thing is um one of my nurse friends got covid for not being vaccinated and she has uh the long haulers COVID. does that ever get better
3: mm. You've asked some really uh, good and tough questions, Eileen, but let me see what Sarah Zhang has to say. First, uh, Eileen was asking about the viability or the the long-term strength of vaccines, and I'm thinking about that LA Times piece I read over the weekend about a study of some 800,000 or so veterans that showed drops in efficacy of the vaccine between like 35 and 85%, so a big range there, Sarah.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think we're just starting to really get a sense of what the long term immunity from these vaccines will look like, right? Like back in December, when we first started giving out vaccines, there were lots of questions, but literally no one had had the vaccine for a year yet at that point. And now now we're really starting to see that, um, especially in older populations, you do see drops uh, in efficacy. Um, not just against transmission, but or infection, but also against a severe illness and death, and that's why we are rolling out boosters for those populations. I think Eileen was also asking the differences between the vaccines, and I would say it's you know it's another one of those things where it's hard hard to really generalize uh, or or to I don't want to make too much of the difference. Uh, make too much of the differences between them. But I think certainly at this point, if you've had one shot of the Johnson & Johnson, um, getting a booster uh, with one of the MRA vaccines seems like a really good idea. And this has kind of been recommended by the public health authorities at this point. Um, The differences between Pfizer and Moderna are a little bit more subtle. There's some indication to suggest that the protection from Moderna is a little bit more durable. Um, That might just be because Moderna is uh, a much higher dose. It's almost three times as high as the dose of Pfizer shot. So that may explain why it seems to be lasting a little bit longer. Um, We're also moving into uh, people getting boosters. And I think that's going to be another big unanswered question in terms of what does the long-term effect of these boosters look like? Um, Will the effect of a third booster be somewhat temporary in the sense that it gets you back to maybe that 95% number we were seeing early last year, but then it just falls again as antibody levels fall? Or is it um, more more permanent? And um, because the first two shots were given three or four weeks apart, which is uh, fairly short for, you know, two-dose vaccines, um, maybe that kind of, is maybe a little bit more equivalent to one dose and because they're, they're given so close together than two doses that maybe getting a third dose at three months might give more permanent protection. We don't know, unfortunately, but I think we will have a better sense of these answers uh, with time.
3: And it sounds like Eileen works in a hospital setting and Eileen was describing how things sort of get better and then they seem to get worse where they're starting to admit more Covid patients, then they're discharging, and so on. Did you want to say a little bit more about some of the the key things to look for within the hospital population that was coming in? You were you were touching on that earlier.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think a really interesting question, and I, I think San Francisco, for example, has been tracking this: is are people who are coming in are they vaccinated or unvaccinated? What's the Percentage, but also the people who are vaccinated. Um, are they are they being hospitalized because they might have other pre-existing conditions? Uh, maybe they're immunocompromised. Maybe they are eight months out from their shots. Um, uh, and I, I think you know there there's some. I think we we'll, we're getting a clearer picture of how long um, hospitalizations. Uh, or um, how how long immunity lasts. I would say also, as Eileen was describing, this kind of like up and down. I, I think we're probably gonna be in for that for a while. You know, the COVID is not something that is like um, like a constant. Where you're going to have a constant number of patients for or constant number of cases over the course of a year. I think we're seeing that we do it comes in, in waves and there are peaks and troughs. Um, it does seem like there is probably some seasonal effect going on. And as we're going into winter, especially in the north, um, that might be something to watch out for. Um, but also there just might be, um, you know, as I've talked to have kind of just described how sometimes you might get a spike just because the virus just so happens. So I found a vulnerable population, maybe a pocket of unvaccinated people. Um, so I think that we're probably going to be in for quite a bit of these like ups and downs over the next year or next several months of our of our coexistence with COVID.
3: Well, similar to Eileen, Jenny asks, could you speak about metrics for number and severity of long COVID cases, long COVID, long haulers?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is a really great question. And one of, unfortunately, the really big unanswered questions going forward. Um, I think what's so difficult about how to quantify long COVID is that it's the definition is just a little bit fuzzy. So we just don't have very many good studies to Kind of quantify exactly what percentage of people are getting long COVID, right? And that's because long COVID might actually be a few different things. Um, for example, if you had a really severe case and you were on a ventilator, um, you're probably going to have some difficulty for for many months, and that that is what happens when you're on a ventilator for for any disease, um, right? Like that that is the um, um, that that is expected in that case. Um, on some cases, it's people who did have, you know, what we would call a mild case, but like still feel very awful for a couple of weeks. Like a, it feels like a very bad case of the flu. In that case, they might, they might have a cough that lasts a long time or they're their um, sense of smell might be diminished for many, many months, or they might just still be a little fatigued for weeks or months afterwards, kind of just like lingering symptoms. Um, and then there are cases we've we've heard about where people have maybe had a really, really mild case, like an asymptomatic case, but were feeling this kind of intense fatigue for, for months and weeks after. And these um, might be, you know, they might have different causes. Um, uh, they might but we kind of all put them under the umbrella term long COVID. So I think going forward, um, I I really would like to see, and I, I know scientists are doing this, like just a better sense of, how common each of these maybe different buckets of long-term side effects from COVID are. Um, And I do think um, that absolutely that long COVID should be one of the things we think about when we think about, you know, how much COVID are we willing to live with. I think if long COVID is happening in 20% of people who get it, that's very different than if it's happening in, you know, 1%.
3: Yes, and and that's what Stephen's question is getting to. Stephen asks, please ask Sarah about her thoughts on how big the problem of long COVID is and how we should factor that in in terms of, as you say, determining how we um, get to living and managing COVID. And you do quote um, Celine Gounder, Dr. Celine Gounder, who says that reducing long COVID should be among the priorities. Can you just explain a little bit more about what she said about long COVID and how that might contribute to complicating efforts to decide on a metric even, as you were saying, it's so hard to, to determine what is, what is long COVID?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I remember Dr. Gounder telling me that, you know, how how common is long COVID being kind of the question that's on a lot of people's minds right now. And I think absolutely that this unfortunately is just one of those still slightly still unanswered questions. What we do know is that vaccines do seem to eliminate some risk of getting long COVID. Right, like you're not going to get COVID if you you're not going to get long COVID if you never catch COVID in the first place. Um, we don't have a great sense of you know how much people who have breakthrough infections how likely they are to get long COVID versus if they um, got COVID for the first time without being vaccinated. And I think you know going forward we'll start to have a better sense of exactly how big that number is, and hopefully start to disentangle um, kind of the different meanings of long COVID that I was talking about a little bit earlier. And I think, I think maybe what people are worried about, um, are right. Like if you're not, if we're talking about the virus, um, having these, like you're just taking a little bit longer to recover from the virus. Cause the virus like did some amount of, uh, maybe physical damage to your body while you were sick with it. Um, if the, if the vaccine is, you know, preventing you from getting severely ill, then we would expect the vaccine to, um, help deal with long, you know, help eliminate or help reduce long COVID at least. If there's also another mechanism going on, which it does seem like there is, where you might have a fairly mild case and still end up with really long COVID and, and fatigue that goes on for months and months, I, I think that is where we have a really unanswered question of exactly how well the vaccine will deal with this. I think, you know, in the absence of of really understanding this going forward, um I, it's, I think, it's understandable if people want to be cautious.
3: Well, Rebecca, tweet Sarah Zhang's suggestion that we need to pivot away from case numbers is right on. We should be using hospitalization metrics, as Monica Gandhi has suggested. COVID is now endemic, and we need to treat it like the flu. Now that kids over five can get vaccinated, let me go to Tom in Los Gatos. Hi, Tom.
5: Hello, uh, Mina. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I, I heard uh, last year uh, Dr. Peter Chen Hung uh, that. There were no cases at that time, Uh, I was in spring, I think, uh, of of anyone with immunocompromised conditions dying from uh, COVID-19. They may have contracted it, but they didn't die from it. I was wondering, is is it still true that no one in California, at least in the Bay Area, Area, has died uh, who was immunocompromised of COVID-19 or complications of COVID-19? Is this because, you know, the cases are better managed, uh, possibly better doctors Um, in the reporting?
3: Let's see. I don't know if there's none, but what do you think about Tom's point about cases of immune people with um, pre-existing conditions or who are immunocompromised, um, that it's being managed better?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely true that we have a much better sense of how to treat COVID than we did in April 2020, right? Um, I think actually, you know, one of the reasons we saw such uh, so much death in those hospitals is not only that they were being overwhelmed, is that doctors really didn't know how to treat COVID. Um, one of the the really simple things that doctors figured out early on was proning patients, which is turning them on their bellies instead of letting them lie on their backs. And early on, there was a there was a sense that we needed to get get people on ventilators. Quickly as possible, and then it became clear that actually, if we can prevent people from needing a ventilator, that that is better. Um, the other big um, case, uh, the other big improvement—not just in in hospitals—as um, but as we're seeing now—is that we have antibody, monoclonal antibodies, and we have uh, the pill from the pills from Pfizer and Moderna, the antivirals that I think will, um, when they become available. I think are a really big deal. They would really help people who maybe for whatever reason couldn't respond to vaccines or were unvaccinated. I think that will really cut into um, reducing hospitalizations and I think be, you know, really be a big part of helping us live with this virus.
3: I think you're answering Jeff's question here. This listener writes, how will the new antivirals change the way we live? Anything else you want to add for Jeff?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I was just thinking when I was reporting last year before we had vaccines, I remember um, one scientist telling me, you know, the goal is to kind of get this to maybe get COVID to something like the flu, where we have vaccines and we have antivirals. And we're we're almost there, right? We definitely have vaccines. Um, We have treatments already. We know that um, steroids can help with severe COVID. And now we are really on the cusp of um, having antiviral, oral antiviral pills being available that can really reduce the um, the need for hospitalization by something like up to 90% uh, if uh, Pfizer's data is to be counted on. And I think all of that will make a big difference going forward.
3: And let me go to Lori in Oakland. Hi, Lori.
4: Hi, Mina. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Uh, Not well. I'm in my 19th month of long-haul COVID, and Hmm. uh, I would have been recovered a year ago possibly, if my ignorant doctors at Kaiser had known anything at all about COVID and then subsequently had been open to learning about long COVID because even though I had blatant symptoms, March 18, 2020, my doctor said it sounds like seasonal flu, which obviously it wasn't. And um, I was never offered a test. Thousands of us were never offered tests. And then we were Essentially, catch 22 because we were never tested. And then, as I began to learn about long COVID and recognized that what I was experiencing was indeed what is now called long haul COVID and all the other medical terms, I um, kept sending scientific literature to all my practitioners at Kaiser. And I was a healthy, strong, active person before uh, I got COVID and. Um, but they dismissed and basically um, gaslighted me and thousands of other patients because they couldn't conceive that someone who had never had a positive COVID test could have developed long COVID, and they didn't want to understand or learn about long COVID anyway. But there, were, there are groups, and I strongly recommend, Nina, that you contact the patient-led research collaborative on long COVID, um, which includes the leadership team. Um, with um, Lisa McCorkle here in the Bay Area. She's a public policy health expert who was at the congressional hearing that Anna Eshoo um, did some months ago, six hours on YouTube, anyone can find it. And there were patients from Body Politic and Patient-Led Research Collaborative talking about long COVID
3: along with Stephen Diggs from UCSF and Francis yeah. Collins from... Well, Laura, I so appreciate the uh, recommendations and I am so sorry about the impact that COVID and Long COVID has had on you. We'll be talking more about how we really think about reducing the impacts of COVID and how to manage that after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how we'll manage COVID long term and how we'll decide when and if to lift restrictions and more with Sarah Jang, staff writer for The Atlantic. Her recent story is America has lost the plot on COVID. And you, our listeners, are invited to share what your questions about how COVID becomes manageable are, what you think that looks like for our society, how you envision living with COVID as a reality, as something that's endemic. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Sarah Jang, just before the break, um, uh, I didn't give you a chance if you wanted to comment on Lori's story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I was um, really sorry to hear what Lori has been going through and especially the difficulties she's had with the healthcare system. I, I think, you know, maybe if there's one silver lining that comes out of this pandemic is that doctors will have a better understanding and a better appreciation for the fact that viruses do sometimes cause these long-term effects. You know, we, we, long COVID is not entirely without precedent. There are other viruses that um, have do something kind of similar where you can kind of cause like a, a chronic fatigue. And I think that's something that doctors often have been reluctant to acknowledge or um, because it's so poorly understood, sort of kind of brushed it off or not want to deal with that. And I think with COVID, because so many people have gotten COVID that even a small percentage of getting long COVID has really created a really, um, you know, vocal and dedicated um patient population dedicated to um, kind of activism around this. I hope that there will be both more research into this topic and just and the kind of one to one interaction with doctors, that everyday doctors will have a better appreciation for this.
3: Well, Louise writes, I greatly appreciate Ms. Jing's clear analysis on this topic. Given the high vaccination rate in the Bay Area, is it not time for the health department to take a new look at the benchmarks they put in place? Among those 65 and over, the most vulnerable, vaccination rates are high. I resent that the general population is being treated very paternalistically, as if we cannot make our own risk assessment when we go to Trader Joe's. Those who remain fearful and anxious can always don their masks. And what is the benefit of having children wear a mask outdoors during recess? It seems more like political posturing than anything else. Louise brings a lot up in that comment, but... I, I would love to just get your thoughts on what Louise is saying. It touches on some of the things that you were saying, though, interestingly, you also point to some of the, the metrics that the Bay Area or criteria the Bay Area are looking at for lifting mask mandates, for example, as, as one approach that could be a model.
2: Yes, uh, though it's pretty complicated. Just just quickly go through, it's a three-pronged criteria. So the first one is that community transmission, so case numbers, are moderate for at least three weeks. The second is hospitalization numbers are low and stable. And the third is that 80% of the total population is fully vaccinated or eight weeks have passed since uh, COVID vaccines have been available for kids age five to eleven, so that's pretty complicated. I, you know, if you're looking at a dashboard, you're looking at a lot of different things at once, trying to make this decision. Um, you know, look, I think there, I think one of the reasons I wanted to write this story is that I think there needs to be conversation about um, in places that are highly vaccinated and that have low case rates. Um, what, uh, what kind of case rates are acceptable, right? Because I think it's possible that even in an endemic scenario where um, COVID is, uh, where essentially almost everyone has something immunity to COVID, either because they've been vaccinated or because they've had it before. Even in that scenario, we might be still seeing tens of millions of cases a year in the U.S. And, and just for comparison, we have, you know, 10 to 40 million flu infections in the U.S. every year. So if we expect something on a similar order of magnitude with COVID, um, we're still talking about, on average, possibly over 100,000 infections a day. Um, so it may be that the the level we've currently set, set it at for a highly vaccinated population is maybe not quite realistic. Um, but the other thing is, of course, not everyone who can get vaccinated is vaccinated yet. Or oh, Sorry, not everyone who wants to get vaccinated can get vaccinated yet. And of course, kids' vaccinations are kind of the big, um, I think, pivot point everyone is thinking about. I will say that in places, for example, I think even, you know, looking a little bit smaller than a whole county or, or a whole city, in workplaces, for example, where everyone is vaccinated, I think possibly having a mask mandate on top of that is maybe not necessary. Of course, that's not the same thing as saying you can't wear a mask. Um, you're still I think everyone should still feel comfortable wearing a mask if they want to. That choice should be respected and it shouldn't be stigmatized. I think it's really unfortunate that kind of masking, which is very visible, has also kind of become this political symbol. Um, But I think I think it's true that, you know, in really highly vaccinated places, we're kind of approaching the point where we should be thinking about what would mean to um, and indoor mask mandates. And for, frankly, like you know, there's not that many places in the U.S. that still have mandatory indoor mask mandates.
3: Interestingly, L.A. is requiring proof of COVID-19 vaccination, I think, beginning today to enter indoor restaurants, malls, theaters, gyms, museums, and so on, performance venues. Could this be the standard in an endemic COVID world?
2: That's a great question. So, I live in New York City where we also have um, uh, vac- proof of vaccination to go into watch a movie or going to a bar or to a restaurant. So, I've kind of been living that reality for uh, a few months now. Um, I think it's possible that this might be something that is in in like the transition to um, endemic COVID, this is something that we keep doing to keep cases down as as much as we can. I don't know if this is something that will be permanent. I can't imagine that, you know, uh, five, 10 years from now that every place will be checking your COVID vaccination. That seems like both a lot of work for the employees. And I think maybe at that point, um, you know, Once we've, for example, have these much better COVID treatments and just more immunity out there, um, we won't have to worry about COVID cases as much anymore. The other thing about talking about endemic COVID is that we've been talking about how to manage the transition to endemic COVID. But in some ways, um, we're going to get there whether we choose to manage it or not, because we're going to get there if just enough people get COVID. Um, So we should be thinking about how to do that and to minimize that.
3: Well, Michael asked, does As a fully vaccinated person I have a higher or lower probability of getting COVID than a person who had COVID? Do you know if there's a difference between those?
2: Oh, yeah, that's that's one of those questions that is really hard to answer for individuals, because what's uh, the I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, quote unquote, natural immunity from people who've gotten COVID. And I think uh, what's difficult in sort of lumping all that together is that people seem to have really different variable responses to um, how much protection they have after they've had COVID months. and. That might be because, you know, if you think about, like, if you catch COVID, it might be because you were living with someone who had COVID, or maybe you briefly were in a room with someone who had COVID, right? And in that first case, you got a lot of virus and maybe that's why you had a more severe response and maybe you had like a more uh, intense immune response and maybe you're better protected. And in the latter case where you're exposed to less virus, maybe you had like a, um, a slightly uh, less a smaller immune response and maybe you're, you're less protected. These are kind of just um, theoretical examples. I, I don't want to say like this is yeah. what happens. But when you get a vaccine, we kind of get a standard dose. So with vaccines, we just have a lot more confidence that you probably were protected um, once you've had the vaccine. But with if you had COVID, there's just a lot more variability. So it's hard to say like how protected you are if you've had COVID before.
3: Well, let me go to caller Zeryl in Ventura. Hi, Zeryl. How are you? Hi. I'm doing well. Thank
5: you. Um, I really hurt for those like the lady that called in with long COVID As an immune compromised 70, I think it turned 72 last week. um, COVID scares me, frankly. But we really need to give our healthcare researchers and our doctors, our everybody that's involved in the care of this, kind of a break because two years ago, we hardly heard of this disease. And we've had such strides forward in the treatment of this that I just really think we need to give each other a break. It mm. Give everybody a break.
3: Well, Zerl, thanks. I, I appreciate that sentiment. And, uh, listener, Wendy is also putting forward a way that, that I think she could envision a world that is managing endemic COVID well. Wendy writes, as an older person who is vaccinated and boosted, what would make me feel comfortable living with endemic COVID is if everyone had at least one rapid test per person at home so they could test at any sign of sickness. I don't trust that I will be able to get a test when I need it, when I feel sick and I'm alone. I believe all of us should have these at home. I don't know what your thoughts are. On that in terms of accessibility and and I think she's almost getting at an equity question here
2: yeah I absolutely agree I think that testing should be um you know should be more available should be more convenient like I you know I I, as I mentioned I live in New York City there are many testing locations around me um but it can still you still have to go to them you still have to have time to go to them you still have to in some cases wait either um can, and it can take, sometimes it can take a couple of days to get the results. And I think the more we can make um, these tests available, for example, if it's something um, as Listen suggested already in your house and you can, um, you can just take it when you, maybe you need to, when you're going to see people indoors, or maybe you can take it because you're feeling a little bit off. Um, I think that would go for a long way to help people make their decisions. Um, In the UK, for example, you can get seven tests sent to you at home for free. And I think it would be wonderful if we had something like that in the U.S.
3: What would you like us or readers of your piece to take away in terms of how we as individuals should think about what endemicity will mean for us or or even just how to get accustomed to the idea. (laughs) I remember the other day, my child's pediatrician said something along the lines of, we're all going to get it at some point, (laughs) right? And I remember, even though maybe I knew that, there was just something about that that was um, kind of shocking to hear.
2: Yes. You know, I was thinking earlier this in the spring when we were talking about when is this pandemic going to be over? One of my colleagues mentioning, oh, when are we going to have a, a day with zero deaths. And I think that was the moment I realized we're probably never going to have a day with zero COVID deaths anymore. We we don't live in a pre-COVID world. We live in a post-COVID world. Um, this is what we live in. We're probably all gonna get COVID one day and hopefully it'll just be a really mild cold. And we hopefully maybe we won't even know that we, you know, the virus briefly infected us and it was just an asymptomatic case. Um yeah, I think, I think that is maybe it, That most of us are probably going to get COVID one day. Um, and that is a really hard thing. I think it can sound very strange at first because we spent every year thinking, you know, this is a virus you must avoid, sometimes avoid at almost all costs. Um, and now we're going to be entering a world where the virus is probably unavoidable and we will get it. But in the vast majority of cases, it will be a fairly mild cold. And
3: then we move on. We're talking with Sarah Zhang, staff writer for The Atlantic, and our conversation is based on her piece, America Has Lost the Plot on COVID. That is asking us to to stop avoiding the hardest questions about living with the coronavirus long-term. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Devin in Napa. Hi, Devin.
0: Hi. Yeah, I had a question for you, guest. Um, so California Governor Newsom uh, said he's going to mandate all school-age kids when it receives FDA approval. Um, what is the rationale, given that the long-term effects of the vaccines have not been studied?
3: Um, Devin, thanks. That's the, the mandate that school-age kids get vaccinated by a certain date, um, Sarah Jang.
2: Yeah, that's right. So I think um, if I if I heard you correctly, and if I'm remembering correctly, that the mandate for school kids will be when once the FDA has authorized the vaccine. Fully, so Yes, fa- fully authorized, right? Or sorry, fully approved the vaccine. Yes. So not emergency use authorization as it currently is. So I think we're actually still a little bit ways off from that. And I think by the time we get to FDA approval, full approval, um, we will hopefully have a better sense of both what this vaccine does when it's been given to at that point, probably not just thousands, but tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of of children. And so we'll have a much better appreciation of even the really, really rare side effects, you know, the one in one million side effects and um, have a better sense of what it's like for those kids to have had it uh, for, um, oh, I, I, I don't want to predict exactly how long it's going to take, but, you know, I think it will be months, if not a year, at least, um, what we do know about vaccines is that when they have side effects, they really tend to appear in the first few months of getting the vaccine, or even the first few weeks, if not days. So given what we know about vaccines, there is um, there's there's not much reason to think that there will only be long-term side effects that appear, for example, years after the line. Um but I do think that the question of, mandates for COVID vaccines for children is going to be a really pressing one and, and frankly controversial one uh, when the approval does happen. But that, that has not happened yet. And I think we'll be seeing a lot more data on the vaccines before that happens.
3: Well, this listener tweets, masks are normalized in other countries because they're simple and effective. But here in America, we have to coax, beg, and promise off ramps because Americans are too self-absorbed to accept a small inconvenience to protect the millions of immunocompromised in this country. Lewis writes, I imagine an endemic COVID future where people wear masks comfortably, like in many Asian countries. It's patriotic to care for fellow Americans. Um, your thoughts on that, Sarah Zhang? You mentioned masks earlier, and what they mean. Is there a hope in an endemic future that uh, masks lose the the political um, meaning that has been attached to them?
2: I I do hope so. You know, I think if anyone wants to wear a mask because they have a cold, even if it's not COVID, if they. you know, uh, or you know, if it's the middle of winter and you're in public transportation, you're kind of right up in someone's armpit. If you want to wear a mask in that scenario, I think absolutely you should be, you should feel comfortable and not uh, stigmatized to make that choice. Um, but I think that's also different from mask mandates, and I just want to draw that distinction there because um, prior to COVID, well, it was you know quite common in in China, for example, to people wear a mask if they wanted to. It wasn't like everyone was wearing a mask during the winter season. It was a voluntary choice. And I think going forward, we might think less about mask mandates, which sort of have a small effect that affects everyone. and am thinking a little bit more about measures that can, are really targeted at the people who are most at risk for COVID. Um, we know that COVID spreads really well in households because that's where you're breathing the same amount of air for a long time with someone. So if we could So if we could have isolation, voluntary isolation and quarantine facilities for people who are sick, um, I think that would go a long way, for example, to help um, uh, decrease the the disease of COVID in the future. So I think we should also be thinking about not just masks, but a lot of other public health interventions that are really targeted at the people most at risk for COVID.
3: Are you seeing any signs that we are getting closer to defining Mm -hmm. a level of risk that we can live with or that we are engaging with the hardest questions about this coronavirus?
2: I don't know. Um, I think, you know, I I think there is increasingly conversations around the fact that COVID is never going to go away and that um, there's always going to want to be cases and it's possible that we're all going to get COVID someday. I really do wish we saw more national leadership coming from example the CDC that is really defining what our goal with COVID is. You know, I think the the booster rollout is just kind of an example of how all over the place um, it seems like everything has been. First, where we're supposed to get boosters and then it was boosters for just um, the elderly and immunocompromised. And then the CDC director overruled her own advisory panel to say it's also people who are high risk of contracting the virus. So I think this kind of whiplash that we're seeing in national policy is really indicative of the fact that we just have not really set a goal or really kind of stared the this question in the face. Is that? There's really, if we, COVID.
3: if we could, it would answer a lot of the other questions about metrics and so on. Well, Sarah Zhang, thanks so much. Thank you. Sarah Jang of The Atlantic, America Has Lost the Plot on COVID is her piece. Check it out and thanks for listening to Forum.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.